Hello, I am Sam Hardy. I help funders and non-profits enhance their impact. This podcast is about how to influence policy at all levels of government. I deconstruct high-impact policy change campaigns with the people who lead them. Each episode is a practical tutorial from highly effective agents of policy change. I explore their mindsets and strategies and what they would do if they had their time again. So if you want to make an impact by running or funding a successful policy change campaign, this podcast is for you. This is an extra outtake episode from my interview with Lyndon Schneiders. At the end of our conversation, we started talking about the campaign to keep big oil out of the Great Australian Bite. Lyndon explains the thinking behind the campaign's initial success to keep BP from starting drilling. When we recorded the interview, we talked about the latest phase of the campaign, which was focused on stopping the Norwegian state company Equinor from its exploration attempts. The great news is that Equinor has pulled out after Twiz mounted court proceedings to challenge the company's approval to drill in the bite. This was such a big win for nature. What's your view on how you crack a corporate, let's say a corporate sort of wavering on its um, SDG sort of commitments? How do you? How, how would you move them? I think it's similar to politics myself. I think, you know, for civil society, for advocates, rather than beating the corporates, how do the corporates do what needs to be done? How do you convince them to do it? And how do they come out the other side of a win? <laughs> you know? <laughs> it was very interesting, you know, like the bite campaign story is still unfolding, it's still active and it's still live, so it feels funny to be talking about it in the past tense. But I'll talk about one part of it. You know, the first part was BP part, you know, like oil drilling, you know, came back on the cards in the bite and, you know, from about 2012 onwards, following a geoscience assessment. Oh, there we go. Yeah, there. The enemy comes up again. (laughs) Well, the institution doing, you know, an important institution doing things that probably shouldn't be doing rather than the enemy. Um, <laughs> so Geoscience Australia, you know, using Ian McFarlane's money, did a deep assessment of the Great Australian Bite, found offshore potential reserves that, you know, could only be proved up, oil and gas reserves, could only be proved up for an exploration phase. Um, that drew the Wilderness Society, Sea Shepherd and others into a campaign, a uh, need for a campaign, as some of the biggest companies in the world started to line up to get the exploration leases and start the drilling program. And the first one off the cab off the rank was BP. You know, it was an extraordinary decision, BP, to even be there, given, you know, they, they took up the right to drill. They went into a joint venture with a company called Statoil, which is now called Equinor. It's a Norwegian oil company. But they took up the right, you know, only two years after Deepwater Horizon, you know, after one of the biggest environmental catastrophes in human, human history. And after the company was crippled by it, you know, like something like $120 billion is what they had to pay out in compensation. You know, the company's US subsidiary was charged and convicted for manslaughter, industrial manslaughter, right, for the lack of care they took for the... Which is unheard of. Which is unheard of, you know. The company lost massive amounts of money. The social licence of the company and the industry in the Gulf of Mexico was badly damaged, you know, massive regulatory reform. Despite this, two years later, they're looking at, drilling a project in an even more risky and more hostile environment than the Gulf of Mexico, right? So when we started to think about how do we convince BP to pull out, which is what we wanted to do, we, you know, we took in those insights around the risk and around BP's learnt experience and we tried to understand 
how the company worked. I spent a lot of time, as did others in the campaign, really trying to understand the global oil industry, understand how these companies worked, what their ecosystem was, how decisions were made, what the factions were. You know, and one of the things that I spent a lot of time talking to folks in the UK who had extensive experience with BP. BP, you know, originally was a British oil company, you know, got its kind of reputation out of drilling in the Middle East, in Iraq and elsewhere. Um, and so we spent a lot of time just understanding the company, you know, and one of the things we understood about the company was that it had a production mindset, you know, it had become very rich and made incredible value for its shareholders, both institutional and individually, by constantly drilling new fields. That's what it actually existed to do and the majority of its effort and the majority of its staff, sole job was to find new fields. That's what it had to do, you know, if it wanted to keep generating investor returns and shareholder profit and all the rest of it, it had to constantly find new fields. Um, but it had had this recent experience of something going wrong, which had been Deepwater Horizon, which had led to turbulence inside the company. We also understood that the subsidiaries competed a lot with the head office, right? And so in Australia, BP was actually kind of nothing. Despite its brand, its brand is huge for its service stations, but as a company... It doesn't do drilling, which is quite different to what BP is globally. BP is a driller, you know, it gets oil. In Australia, it's a brand. Um, so f- for BP Australia, they really, 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 really wanted to get into the drilling business. That's really what they wanted to do. A lot of people are going to get really successful and we're going to have a really nice time and are going to build a very big company um, by drilling. Now, what we discovered pretty quickly was the desire to open up new fields was not nearly well as held by the parent company in London who was still recovering. You know, and I had to go and experience it myself. I went to their AGM in 2015. I met with their executive. I met with their leadership. And the smell of death that still hung over that company after that terrible trauma, both for the company and for the environment and for the poor workers that perished in the disaster, was profound. Mm -hmm. And the idea that they somehow wanted to open up a new bloody field in Australia (laughs) with considerable community opposition in deep hostile waters where there was no experience. It made it really easy to then implement the persuasion campaign to convince head office to say, you know what, we're not doing this. So again, it's the research. It's the the Deeply understanding the company, the situation it's in, talking to the the UK head. Talking to the UK head, but talking to those that had encountered the company and knew the company and campaigned against the company and the lessons they had learnt, you know, like this is where being a movement is powerful. You know, earlier on you gave me some, asked me for some advice for funders and I said, well, if you can, try not to give money to people who go around bagging the movement and their rivals, if you like, (laughs) try to look for people who are collaborators Mm -hmm. because that's really important. Because the... Power of collaboration scares a brand like BP. Oh, and the power of experience and knowledge. You know, there was relationships that were just handed over by these great campaigners in the UK, uh, great campaigners who had acquired these relationships and these insights over 20, 30, 40 years, you know, and they just handed them over because, you know, we had a shared objective, Mm. which was to make sure this place didn't get drilled. Um, Yep. It was, yeah, extraordinary. And quickly just to finish this up because... There'd be a lot of people interested in the tactics you use influencing the UK to, to sort of say no to their small Australian subsidiary. Yeah, look, it was surprisingly straightforward. Um, the company was so preoccupied with a number of issues. They had a big backlash around executive remuneration at this AGM, right? Um, partly because the investors were going, 
we had a whole bunch of questions about the company and its direction, direction in terms of continuing to focus on oil, for example, <laughs> and continue to expand. Uh, questions around whether or not they'd learnt any lessons from Deepwater Horizon. So there was an existing debate that was going on inside the AGM about the remuneration package, because that's one of the things AGMs do is they approve remuneration packages for the executive, right? And they're not small pickies. These are you know, tens of millions of dollars, usually a parcel of shares and direct financial. So there was a whole bunch of debate going on there. There was a whole bunch of really activated investors because this particular AGM had actually only occurred um, a few months after the Paris climate change agreement wow, was reached. Wow, so context is everything. So context was everything. There was highly engaged investors, major pension funds who were going, you're kidding, we just signed Paris and you guys are looking at a new bloody oil, a new frontier field in Australia. Like, you've got to be kidding. Um, so understanding that was the environment which we're operating. You know, I got given a proxy by some great people from Greenpeace UK to speak. I tried, I spoke for about five minutes put a simple proposition to the board, said, I don't want to be here next year. You don't want me to be here next year. You know, this is not in line with Paris. This is too risky. You know, had a great dialogue directly with the CEO and with the executive afterwards, you know, five months later. How significant was the oil spill modelling? Huge. Huge, because it brought into, yeah, there was two things, and there was a real credit to those who had been part of putting together the original proposal, Peter Owen, and others from the Wilderness Society, because... They, instead of taking the advocacy approach, you know, earlier on I talked about the credibility of research, you know, and how important it is. Instead of taking an advocacy approach when they did the initial, they, they did an independent, they, they, we commissioned an independent analysis of what would happen under a series of conditions if there was a spill during the drilling phase or the exploration phase of, um, of drilling in the bite, you know, taking into account all the biophysical characteristics, the roaring 40s, the fast currents, the drilling season. Um, and instead of going for the most extreme research, we went for the most conservative. Like Peter's view always was, it's got to be a conservative analysis. It's got to be credible. It's got to stand up, you know. And look, the findings of that report were pretty terrifying anyway. You know, they showed a whole range of conditions in which spills would be decimating, you know, southern Australia coastline. Um, but what was really interesting is once BP finally pulled out, they released all of the information we've been asking them to release for a long time, including their own risk um, profiles and their own oil spill modelling. And our modelling was conservative compared to theirs. Wow. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> theirs, theirs showed it was even going to be worse, which is why they wouldn't publicly release it. So, you know, that temptation, and, and, and it always feels like this when, particularly when the stakes are so high and it's catastrophic what's happening out there and change needs to happen straight away, the temptation to go for the quick sugar hit and just commission the quick and dirty report and the dodgy science and the funny social research. So funders need to fund really high-quality, credible, social, totally. environmental, social, economic. Social, economic research. Yep. You know, you have yep. to. You That's know, such and, an important message. And often... So much of the data is already out there, you know. Um, being produced by big, credible organisations, OECD, IMF, you know, International Energy Agency, like there is a wellspring of data actually already out there, which often you don't need to go and keep on commissioning new <laughs> research. You just need to pull it together. Sometimes you just need to pull it together. Yep. Sometimes you need to make sure that you've got the best experts on board so they want to do the research and they're prepared to be advocates with you and not necessarily public advocates. <laughs> 
They'll go to the meeting to talk to the minister, yeah. but you don't necessarily want to put them you in the media. You don't necessarily walk them out into the bloody press gallery. Yeah. You know? Because that then says you're not here to resolve the problem. That's we're here says, to blow it up. We all here to, we're here to kill you. Yep. Now, you know, I know how unconventional much of what I say is because I've been around this movement and been a campaigner my entire life, you know. My life actually goes beyond my adult life. I was a campaigner when I was 14, for God's sake. So I understand what I'm saying is not necessarily um, in line with conventional wisdom, but I'm just drawing on my experiences and what I've seen. That's why I'm just loving having this conversation. To finish up on the on the bite issue, I, I suppose I can't, I can't resist because it's so important. It's given a plug to the Wilderness Society because one thing BP did was they gave their license or didn't they sell their license for a dollar or something to Equinor? So, so Equinor, Equinor is still there trying to yeah. explore in the Great Australian Bite. Yeah, it's a really important phase for that campaign, hey? So um, it's been a phenomenally successful campaign. One of the reasons I'd argue it's been phenomenally successful is that it has been driven and executed in the right way. Um, it has been about building local community support and concern. It has been about being credible. It has been about not making outrageous statements and claims, you know, and it's about engaging in process in goodwill, you know, including impact assessment processes. You know, when we when the campaign started, it was BP in a joint venture with Statoil, which, like I said, has become um, uh, Equinor, rebrand, um, which is Norway's largest oil company or Norwegian government, 75% owned. Um, there was um, BP and Statoil, there was Chevron, um, and there was a bunch of small players, you know. And for us, the real concern was BP and Chevron, you know. And BP's gone, and Chevron followed them a year later to the day, right? They said, fuck it. <laughs> and then for reasons that still are inexplicable, other than political influence, Statoil agreed to take over the, one of the BP leases. You know, so I went from a junior joint venture partner into the partner, you know, the proponent. I don't know why for the life of me they are continuing to pursue this. Like I genuinely don't know why they are continuing to pursue this development. There is such deep opposition at almost every level, even inside government, to this proposal, you know. You do not see the Matt Canavans of the world carrying on like they do around Adani around this proposal. You do not see the state government being forceful advocates for this proposal. Um, everyone's concerned and worried about it. There is a genuine and legitimate concern around Australia's oil reserves, which can't be underestimated, but sits deeply. Like Australia has literally no oil reserves and in a time of great international uncertainty, um, that is actually a problem. Um, so there is a residual intellectual argument that is made that Australia needs oil reserves. It's not like Equinor's actually said they would give us any of the oil, by the way. And all our existing domestic fields are running out, you know, particularly in Bass Strait. So there is actually an issue, right? Whether you like oil or not, this economy still runs off oil. So that sits there. And, it's, and I suspect that's why the project hasn't completely died, because I think there's people in government who continue to be worried that we have no oil reserves anymore. Um, and what would that mean if international conditions deteriorated. But that can be the only reason the project's still alive, you know. It's been approved by the regulator, you know, um, and the Wilderness Society doing a fantastic thing. have challenged that approval in the courts and that's hugely important. 
The laws are inadequate, as a discussed chapter and verse, you know. Um, so I think even it's important we get a good result in the courts and that will provide further time and the ability to continue to advocate for a different pathway and for no drilling in the bite. But, you know, it is really watch this space. This could escalate or it could de-escalate massively, you know. Equinor is on track to drill you know, next summer, summer after. It's not far away. And you know, something like 12 local governments or more along the, you know, South Australian coastline have already said they don't support all drilling in the bite. You know, it's genuine people power. You know, these are small local councils, not full of greenies. You know, often people that don't even like greenies much, you know, tuna industry people, et cetera, yeah, et cetera. I understand. Um, yeah, it's a powerful campaign. Really, you know, the fate of it all really sits in Equinor's hands. There's going to have to be a lot of pressure built in Norway. Um, the court case needs to be prosecuted, you know. Funders need to fund the campaign, support it. It's huge. Yeah, it is. And that, that you know, have to be honest about my vested interest. I do work for the Wilderness Society. Um, as well as doing a few other things on the side, and um, but I, I can't, I can't resist giving it a plug. It's such an important one. Totally, Landon, we can't be opening new frontier fossil fuel bastions. It's as simple as that. It's so insane. Like it's the same with Galilee. It's the same with Adani. It's the same in the Hunter. It's the same in the Bass. We just can't. You know, if you want a transition, talk about a transition. A transition can be staged. Transitions do not start with opening new reserves which then are built into the system for the next 30, 40, 50 years. Give us a break. Hopefully Norway starts to listen. Yeah. Well, you know, Equinor say they're a great leader in renewable energies and they're dropping scope for it's, it's inexplicable, actually, you know, why they're pursuing this. Watch this space. Totally. The Wilderness Society's campaign to keep big oil out of the bike continues. While Equinor has now pulled out, which is a fantastic outcome, the next challenge is to ensure that the bike gets permanent protection. To find out more about this campaign and to donate, go to wilderness.org.au. Thank you for listening to Agents of Policy Change. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and rate the show as this helps other people find it. And please get in touch with your comments and suggestions at samhardyphilanthropy.com.au.